At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello everyone and welcome to this new podcast for drug science. I'm David Nutt and today my guest is Corey Doctorow. Now he's not the kind of person we've had on this uh, podcast before because he's he's a writer, uh, he's a political activist and to be honest, I'd not come across him until he wrote a rather nice and gracious review of Drugs Without the Hot Air. And I thought, well, then this is definitely a man I need to talk to because clearly we, we think in similar ways, although he's got a much, uh, a much broader reach than me in terms of sharing his concerns about the way in which particularly modern technology is potentially very threatening and, and also undermining quite a lot of rational policies in relation to drug policies. So welcome, Corey. Well, thank you very much. Yes, I... Uh... I first encountered you in my kitchen in Hackney, listening to you on on the radio during the the nutsack affair. I don't know if you prefer calling it something else, but that's that's how I've always thought of it. And then um, I love your nut- publisher was was good enough to send me drugs without the hot air. I was a great fan and remain a great fan of the hot air series. the The first one, climate change without the hot air, or energy without the hot air. I forget what it's called, but the first one was was very good, and the series has remained very strong. So, but it was the first one, Corey. That- they used to persuade me. They said, look, this first one, you, you, this guy wrote this book about, I think it's sustainable energy without the hot air. And he sustainable said, energy. That's the title. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And he's now on every, every course of sustainability in universities as 300,000 copies. You know, if you write your book on drugs without the hot air, you could end up becoming the government's advisor. And I said, well, actually I used to be that. <laughs> so I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah, definitely. I can't see Jackie Smith hiring you again in a hurry. You know, I, I grew up in Canada and then in the U.S. and then spent 13 years in the U.K. And drugs policy has been a mess everywhere. And, you know, it was through Bruce Alexander in British Columbia that I became aware of the uh, racialized history of drugs policy and its use as a weapon against people who were already marginalized, uh, Chinese people, black people and so on. And and from there, you know, I, I learned more and Canada was one of the many ground zeros of the opioid epidemic. And I lost friends to opioid overdoses even before the rise of Purdue Pharma's drugs but back in the heroin days and certainly took an interest in harm reduction as a result of those very sad experiences. So your book really uh, crystallized a lot of things that I'd been peripherally aware of or that I had taken to be evils, but not the evils that I focused on and so really squared it up. I was a teetotaler for many years and still partake very parsimoniously and only of lawful substances because I'm an immigrant. And so I'm in a very precarious situation. I struggle with chronic pain and have spoken to psychopharmacologists who've said that some psychedelics might in fact help, but I have abstained from them for that reason. Well, that's right. As you and all of us know that, you know, the drug law is, is extraordinary, not just a blunt weapon. It often has perverse consequences. And mm-hmm. the one thing it does do is give a lot of latitude to come down hard on you if they want to. So 
definitely better to be safe than sorry in that regard. Yeah. But uh, in terms of chronic pain, you know, there was, you could think of cannabis, medical cannabis, which is now, I guess, very accessible in California. It is very accessible. Unfortunately, it's still federally scheduled. And so I would be violating a federal statute and it would endanger my my immigration status. Indeed, I went into a dispensary once just to, to ask about it. And they asked for my ID at the door. And I thought, oh, well, they just want to make sure I'm over 21. And then yeah, before yeah. I knew it, they'd scanned it. And this turns out to be a part of the medical cannabis regime in California as some kind of half-assed prevention mechanism to stop people from shopping around and, and exceeding the daily limit. But, you know, I looked at that person at the in the little glassed-in booth scanning my driving license and thought, you know, no language on earth contains the phrase as good as the information security at a cannabis dispensary. And, you know, this is potentially e extremely damaging information that they're over-collecting, over-retaining, and almost certainly storing in insecure ways. And this is where, you know, this stuff intersected with my own work on information security and tech policy. And, you know, you talk about selective enforcement and almost universally our computer security laws have been enacted in these very broad ways with the notion that you could just trust law enforcement and prosecutors to only bring down the hammer on the people who really deserved it. And as a consequence, we've seen similar kinds of, of selective enforcement as we worry about in drugs policy. Yeah, so that's, that's where yeah, you've obviously got, as I said, a much broader interest in coercive policies. But before we get on to that, I'm interested to know what you were doing in Britain all those years ago. What, were you over here to learn or to teach? Or? Well, a little bit of both. I'm on faculty at the Open University in the computer science department, but I actually came over to be the European director of a nonprofit, an NGO called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So it's uh, the oldest of the digital liberties, digital rights, digital human rights, NGOs, 30 years old. And I moved over because so many things were happening in the European context, some of them very positive, although many of those didn't gel. There was a time when um, British public institutions, including the museums, but also notably the BBC, were contemplating aggregating all the materials that they had and putting them under a permissive license that would allow the public to make use of them, to remix them, to put them in school projects, to make art out of them. And that's a, a policy initiative that's hard to imagine in the US context. First, because to the extent that there are materials that are owned by the government here, they are by default in the public domain. So there, there is no crown or parliamentary copyright. But second, because there's so little investment in public institutions per se, there isn't a, a national public broadcaster comparable to the BBC. And so it was a very exciting idea that you might be able to create a kind of coalition of the willing of countries that did engage in public spending to produce this commons that would be of availability to all of the countries that participated and you could have a kind of interchange between them. You know, it's, it's bizarre that you have BBC World Service in Farsi and Pidgin and all these other languages as a kind of soft diplomacy but that the BBC also has all these materials that if you are in Iran or, or in uh, the Caribbean or what have you, and you download them and share them around, they'll uh, seek prosecution of you under copyright law. I hadn't realized, I hadn't realized that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it just seemed like a no brainer. Unfortunately, 
you know, we had um, an increasing neoliberal tendency in the UK that was already bad when I got there and only got worse. And so this idea that the BEEB needed to be self-funding rather than relying on the license fee became more prominent. And the BBC reoriented its vision for online access from creating a, a free commons for license payers who paid to produce the material that was in its vault to figuring out how to charge Americans to look at BBC programming, irrespective of what that did to British access. So in addition to that, I worked on, on treaties at the EU level and also policies at the EU and UK level. I spent an extraordinary amount of time in Geneva working on UN treaties and helping kick off what became the Marrakesh Treaty, which is the treaty on, on limitations to copyright for people with disabilities. So that's the treaty that allows, for example, um, an assistive edition of a book that's prepared by someone in South Africa to be lawfully exported for use to for visually impaired people in the UK or Australia and also to block something called the Broadcasting Treaty, which unfortunately is back now and, and under negotiation there. Thankfully, not my job anymore, but the, it was a very far-reaching treaty that would have given a copyright-like right not to creators nor to investors in creative works, but to broadcasters, so that even if you had an agreement from the person who created the work and the person who funded the work, if the broadcaster that you recorded it from or the website that you recorded it from objected, they could block your use of the work. And so this is um, this is just a charter to allow intermediaries to extract rent for works that they had no economic interest in and provided no creative labor in, just a, a means to allow intermediaries to create choke points in creative markets and shift more wage and benefit from workers to essentially rentiers. And so that was that was my work there. I did it for off and on for 13 years. I took some time out and just wrote novels full time. I'm a reasonably successful novelist. You write science fiction, is that right? I do, yeah. And as well as, you know, fiction for middle grades, I, I published a picture book last year for four to six year olds. And I've got a, a somewhat scholarly mainstream book coming out next year that I wrote with a collaborator in Melbourne, uh, Rebecca Giblin, who's a copyright expert on wage theft in the creative markets and how copyright is not a good instrument for ensuring that intermediaries give more money to creators because if, if copyright is alienable, if you can be forced to sign it over as a condition of reaching an audience that has been, you know, corralled by an intermediary, then the more copyright you give to artists, the more copyright will be demanded by intermediaries from artists. It's like giving your bully kid more lunch money and hoping that the bullies won't take it. And so instead, we talk about uh, other remedies, including more vigorous anti-monopoly enforcement, declaring certain contractual clauses unconscionable and, and against policy, better accounting practices, restoring trade union rights for creators, things that would actually make a difference as opposed to things that would make indignant people feel better momentarily before once again they're fleeced. So you, you come into this from the background of computer science, is that right? Is that how, how you started? I'm a computer science dilettante, so I dropped out of four undergraduate programs and never took a degree. I, I dropped out to be a programmer and then founded a startup and then went, went to work for this NGO. The OU were kind enough to give me an honorary doctorate, so that's the, that's the degree I have. But I, I'm a visiting professor there, and I'm a visiting professor in the library school at the University of North Carolina and also a research affiliate at the MIT Media Lab. So I, I kind of dabble in the academic world, but I'm by no means an academic. Uh, the only place they call me here, doctor, doctor, professor, is Germany, you know? Well, it's interesting. I, you probably don't know this, but I'm also a visiting professor at the Open University. 
I didn't know that. That's wonderful. I feel even better about being an OU professor. And I felt pretty good about it beforehand. That's great. You know, I've always thought that that was one of Britain's great achievements, the Open University, which, of course, you're seeing it, it's being eroded and eroded now, which is, you know, financial cuts. But, it, you know, as a vision, I, I thought it was one of the, probably one of the greatest things that uh, the British Labour government's ever done. I mean, I, I guess you you agree because you went there. <laughs> Entirely, yeah. I, I mean, universal access to education is so critical. And, you know, the OU had a lot to teach us during the lockdown, I think, about distance education and about humane ways of pursuing it and student-centered learning. I mean, the fact that the OU is such a, it's one of its major constituencies are people doing continuing education who aren't necessarily looking for career advancement and who aren't, there's, there's no leverage the uni holds over them. If the uni doesn't make them feel like they're learning something that makes their lives better they the students go away has made the uni responsive in a way that it, that caters to students love of learning not like say an mba program that caters to students desire to cash in on a degree no quite although one of the, i worked in the states for a couple of years and uh, i was quite interested in that there is in a strange way there's almost more interest in lifelong learning in the state it was very common for you know most of a lot of the nurses on my research ward to be doing evening courses or postgraduate courses in britain we do tend to have it apart from the open university everything's much more structured and packaged you know you you know you're in a track and you do whatever it takes to get to the next station but we don't particularly encourage the sort of openness of, of, of exploring other other options whereas i think in the states it there seemed to me more willingness to do that i don't know if that's still the case that was 30 years ago I think that's right. And I think that you see this reflected in the assessment methodologies in UK pedagogy, where high stakes testing as opposed to continuous assessment is so common. You know, it took me a long time. I grew up reading, you know, the Adrian Mole novels. <laughs> and so I, everything I know about British education, GCSEs, before I actually had a kid in the British school system, I learned from Adrian Mole. And I didn't quite clock that when he talked about sitting exams and, and was so anxious about them, it was because you didn't need to do the coursework. You could literally just sit the exam and that there was no continuous assessment. And, you know, my parents are both pedagogists. They both have ed Ds and, and both taught in public school systems for many years, uh, uh, state school systems. And, you know, I am firmly of the belief that high stakes testing measures very little apart from your ability to sit a high stakes test. And again, this is a thing that's come up rather a lot during the pandemic and the lockdown and I just, I sit on the Secretariat for Policy for the Association for Computing Machinery, which is a computer science professionals association that lobbies the government. And we just co-authored a report that I think we're publishing today on uh, remote invigilation tools, remote proctoring tools that were used during the lockdown and, and how bad they were. Hang on, Corey, Corey you better yeah. explain a bit to us what they are. Sure. Yeah, well, if you're so if you're going to assess students on the basis of high stakes examinations and those students can't come into the school building and they also can't go into an invigilation hall, a proctoring hall where they sit an exam. When I became a British citizen, someone in Islington who rented a storefront sat me down and loomed over my shoulder while I typed answers into a computer in order to invigilate my my life in the UK test. You need some other means, right? And so that other means might be to say, well, high stakes testing was never very good and maybe we should try something else. Or <laughs> you could say, well, we're going to figure out how to spy on students while they sit exams. And so there's an entire industry. It's not a cottage industry. It's a vast and highly profitable and growing industry of remote proctoring or remote invigilation toolsmiths 
who make products where they overpromise and they say, you know, what we'll do is we'll sit your students down, we'll have them take their webcam and show the whole room that they're in, we'll install some artificial intelligence software, which is, you know, should be red flag number one, that's going to uh, do kind of digital phrenology and look at their faces and determine if they're maybe looking off screen to consult a crib sheet of answers yeah. that they've hung up behind the computer and, you know, do all of this kind of business to detect cheating, including monitoring the network packets coming out of their computer to see if they're looking up the answers somehow and so on. And this has produced just like a an unbelievable parade of horribles. So first of all, the facial recognition system doesn't really work on brown and black faces because it's been trained on faces that look like yours and mine. And so you have these uh, racialized kids who sit their exams with as many lights as they can find shining directly in their face so that the facial recognition system can see them. But anyone who looks up and away while they're thinking or mutters answers to themselves is disqualified or accused of cheating. People who get anxious and throw up are told that they're accused of cheating. The live proctors who sometimes sit in on these and spy on you through your camera have been known to do things like seize control of your mouse and jiggle your pointer while you're thinking as a way of hurrying you up because they get bored of waiting for you to click an answer. The network monitoring software accused the entire California bar exam cohort of cheating because the law schools required that they install software on their computers to get their coursework. And this software in the background was dialing up to get their coursework. And they said, why is your computer fetching data while you're sitting in exam? All your windows are supposed to be closed. And eventually kind of crept away with their tail between their legs when finally they were convinced that their own tools were the ones generating these false positives and so on and so on. And then that's before you even get into the racial and technical inequities where if you don't have a home, you sit your exam in the parking lot of a library or a, or a Taco Bell. And so when you show your environment, you're automatically disqualified. If your home has no broadband and you were just complaining about your poor broadband there, poor broadband is highly correlated in the U.S. with poverty. It, it goes postcode by postcode. One side of the street will be served, the other side won't. And the side that's not served is the side that historically had restrictive covenants that prohibited, or rather the side that is served is the side that had restrictive covenants that, that prohibited black people from buying homes on that side of the street. And that's the side of the street that has internet, the other side of the street doesn't. So again, you're stuck in that car park, but also you know, forcing a student to show their home life is hugely invasive. And there are students Absolutely. whose parents are working night shifts who only have one room in their flat. They live in a bed set. And forcing a student to reveal their sleeping parent or worse, ask that sleeping parent to leave while the student sits their exam is grossly, grossly iniquitous. And so, you know, we wrote this long report and we included the fact that many of the academics who blew the whistle on this software, who pointed out the capabilities that they described to teachers but didn't talk about in their public-facing materials that were incredibly invasive. When they revealed this, the company accused them of violating non-disclosure agreements or copyright or of tortious interference. They sued them. They threatened them. One student went on Reddit to complain about his experience with the software as a child. And the CEO of the most successful of these products, a company called Proctorio, doxed the child on Reddit uh, the Guardian called him out for it. He later had to apologize, but an apology carries very little weight here. You know, right. and, uh, this person should be permanently disqualified from working with children, not forced to issue an apology and then make tens of millions of dollars. Right. So, what kicked you off on this? I mean, was it was it sort of reading 1984? Did you did you see the uh, 
<laughs> the world going to change and computers driving that? Well, you know, I grew up with a computer scientist. My dad's a computer scientist. That was his discipline when I was growing up. We had teletype terminals connected to university mainframes in the 70s at home. And I was very excited by computers, like a lot of people. And there's a story about the people who were excited about computers in the 1990s and the late 1980s, which is that we were blind optimists, that all we could think of is that this would all be so great. And all we wanted to do was get more computers into more people's hands. And I don't know anyone who felt that way. I think that there were a lot of people like me who were very excited, but we were all also scared because it only took 15 minutes with a really intense computing to realize all the ways it could go horribly wrong. And so, you know, the motto wasn't, this will all be so great. It was, this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. And so, you know, in my capacity as a science fiction writer, I spent a lot of time thinking narratively about how we could screw it up. But in my capacity as a computer user and professional, I saw that cyberpunk, rather than being taken as a warning, was being read as a suggestion and that, you know, it was really coming true. And so I got more and more involved. And there came a point where working in the industry became untenable because the policies require that you either do things with computers that I viewed as profoundly immoral or drop out. And so I took option C, which was raging against them, you know, joining a, a political group that worked to keep users free and safe online. And that's really been my life's work now for 20 years. I mean, how did you get involved in, in drugs policy? I mean, you're a scientist. How did you go from scientist to crusader? Oh, I got involved in drugs policy because I mean, the government invited me. My story is interesting. You know, I mean, I, I'm a psychiatrist, psychopharmacologist. I was studying the effects of drugs. And, you know, there aren't that many people, I guess, in the UK who knew that much about drugs. And actually, when ecstasy came along, they, uh, they invited me to consult with them on how we might minimize the harms of ecstasy, stop people dying in clubs. And, uh, yeah, we came up with some sensible ideas, like, you know, give them free water, have a cool-out room, you know, simple things like that. You know, about harm reduction, nothing about trying to, you know, the drug was already banned and we didn't think you could do, you know, anything more in that direction. And then I was appointed to, uh, they asked me to join, the, you know, to basically run the uh, the committee that looks at the harms of drugs. They invited me to sit in on a, on a meeting one day and uh, <laughs> I was surrounded by all these other academics. And I realized that none of them were applying any kind of rules to this. It was, <laughs> when we talked about ecstasy, over my dead body, we'll never make that legal. I mean, hang on a second, but you know, how do you know it? How do you know it's harmful? And I took the position on the only on the terms that we'd actually develop a system, yeah, a transparent, objective way of assessing drug harms. And of course, I spent seven, eight years doing that, and then came it came to the wrong conclusion. It, it showed that the policy was wrong, and right out I was. <laughs> Turns out reality has a well-known pro-drug bias because the poly drug policies are um, almost completely driven by political decisions. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that I knew about that exercise and I that exercise looms very large in my own political economy. So this example of yours of how, of the drugs classification looms very large in my own work which lately has delved a lot into why people believe harmful things and what role if any technology plays in it. And there is a, a hypothesis that's gained a lot of currency which is that although the large tech firms lie habitually about everything, right? How they manage your private data and when they're recording it and what their labor practices are and so on, that the one time that they're telling gospel truth 
is when they tell their customers how well their ads work and that their ads work very, very well and they can convince people of anything using machine learning. And I think that this is an extraordinary claim in want of extraordinary evidence. And I think the evidence is thin. It's their sales literature. It's not great peer-reviewed studies. There's the one very famous one where Facebook exposed 60 million people to a stimulus that they predicted would increase voter turnout. And they saw a 0.39% effect size, which you know is a, several hundred thousand people, which might sway an election if they were all in one precinct. But a 0.3, it was, it was evenly distributed across all precincts and even very tight elections are not really decided on 0.39% <laughs> margins. And even if you worry about that, there's as much reason to suspect that the stimulus would regress to the mean as that they would be able to sharpen it. You know, we oftentimes persuasion techniques get blunter, not sharper with repetition. And so I am inclined to think that rather than believing that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg made a mind control ray to sell your nephew fidget spinners and then, you know, Robert Mercer stole it and made your uncle a Brexit racist, that your uncle was a Brexit racist all along and that material conditions are why people don't trust the system and engage in conspiratorial thinking. And first among those material conditions is the fact that these allegedly neutral truth-seeking exercises where contradictory evidence from experts is adjudicated by impartial referees who resolve thorny technical questions that are matters of life and death for us from the safety of vaccines to the safety of airplanes to safety of different kinds of food preparation you know witness the long debate about chlorine and chickens that monopolization allows firms to turn those truth-seeking exercises into auctions and that when you have an industry that boils down to a few firms and, and your battles with the alcohol industry, I think, you know, one of the facts that's underappreciated when you tell those stories is how concentrated the alcohol industry is, that it wasn't that hundreds of companies were affronted by what you said about booze. It was that four companies who control the whole industry were affronted by what you said about booze. And they had an extraordinary amount of money to spend, and they were able to resolve the collective action problem about how to spend it, because there's only four executives who need buy-in. And they were able to neutralize your excellent anti-binge drinking exercises. And for me, the lesson that I take from your, from your memoir, your experiences, is that on the one hand, it is absolutely possible to resolve empirical questions that have qualitative dimensions, that you can empirically determine how harmful a drug is and then qualitatively ask politicians what to do about it or what kind of harms are most important. And that on the other hand, that all of that great science goes nowhere when a monopoly is driving the decision making. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when a monopoly has worked out to get, to get into a monopoly position as a drinks industry is one of the great successes of the last hundred years it's it's driven all given out all competition i suppose a slight exception now is recreational cannabis coming back in the u.s you know after 100 years so or 80 years or more yeah. yeah i mean so i would quibble slightly and say it's not an exception that this is the thing that i keep running up against when i talk about monopoly with people who are really good domain experts in one area that is monopolized is they think that the industry that they grapple with is uniquely monopolized. But in fact, mm -hmm. there is only one eyeglass company left in the world, uh, Luxottica Essilor, which owns every high street 
optometrist in your city. They also own every eyewear brand and they manufacture more than half of the lenses worldwide and they own the world's largest eyewear insurer. And there's also one professional wrestling league and there's also three giant shipping companies and there's three giant record labels and, you know, like there's one cheerleader uniform company. And so, you know, monopolization is pathological. It's cross-sectorally pathological. But the good news is, and the reason I raise this is not to tell you you're wrong. The good news is that once we realize this, right, once we realize that we're all grappling with the same issue across these different sectors, that the reason you couldn't get good drugs policy is the same reason I can't get good tech policy, then we have a reason to join forces the same way that, you know, before the term ecology came along, it wasn't obvious why people who cared about whales should also care about the ozone layer, you know, charismatic aquatic mammals are not immediately connected to the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere. But, you know, ecology allowed us to take a thousand issues and make it one movement with a thousand ways to get involved. No, I can. Yeah, that's a, that's a very, yeah, it's a, a very important insight. Yeah, which I, you're right. I haven't certainly picked up on before. So how would you see, I mean, where are you taking your kind of libertarian or anti-monopolistic perspective now on on information technology then we want how should we move forward as a society yeah i wouldn't call myself a libertarian although there are many libertarians in the circles i travel in i was raised by marxists so i've never been entirely comfortable with the idea of libertarianism and indeed what we see right now in the context of monopoly is that in the absence of the the state to check the power of firms that firms can very easily take very vibrant competitive markets that produce not just competition for its own sake, but rather competition that allows citizens to have self-determination, to choose what they use, where they use it, and how they use it, and how they, therefore how they conduct their lives, that we need muscular state action to make that happen. And, you know, we're getting it. There is, in fact, movement in the EU, in the UK, in the US, Australia, and India to check the power of the tech giants. And in part, one of the reasons it has a tailwind is because there are other industries that don't like the tech industry, notably the entertainment and telecoms industry that have always viewed the tech industry as free riding on it. Now, those industries are every bit as rotten and concentrated as the tech industry, and they're making a very poor bet, right? They're betting that they can invite enforcers in to target their enemies and that afterwards the enforcers won't turn on them that you know you can pay the Danegeld, right? And then stop. Yes. And I think that we have a moment coming where if we keep focused on the fact that tech is but one of the industries, that tech is not exceptional, not exceptionally evil, nor exceptionally good, nor exceptionally monopolized, but rather just a bunch of sociopathic mediocrities doing the same thing to this one industry that they've done to all the others. And indeed, you know, often with interlocking boards and shareholders and cap tables, because, you know, when you have wealth concentrated into a small number of very large funds, it's inevitable that all of these firms turn out to have common ownership to a large degree. Then there's the possibility to take the momentum we have behind us and keep going with it. And, you know, I think that one of the challenges we face is that not all competition is good, that competition is not the goal we should be looking for, but rather self-determination. You can have competition to see who can be the worst. So in the when the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK did a rather good 480-page report on the ad tech market 
Facebook and Google in the UK, they came up with some incredibly sensible and good recommendations and some genuinely ghastly ones. So they observed that one of the reasons that Facebook and Google are able to command a premium for their ads is that they can do something called attribution, which is where they use a variety of uh, surveillance techniques, location data, purchase data purchased from third parties, credit card companies, and so on, as well as your web habits to determine whether after you saw an ad, you did the thing that the person who bought the ad wanted you to do, you bought something or what have you. And that this attribution is prized by advertisers, obviously, right? It's easy to see why they would. It's also a, a grotesque human rights abuse. And the CMA says, well, one of the ways we can address the competitive advantage that Facebook and Google have is by issuing government advertising tracking IDs to everyone in the country and then democratizing access to them so everyone can spy on you to so that attribution can be performed by all people instead of just the duopoly. And, you know, this is exactly the wrong answer. You know, the right answer is we need to make Google and Facebook so politically weak that we can prohibit this practice, not spread it around. And it's an idea that's very old. In the first wave of anti-monopoly action, there was a great hero of the movement called Ida Tarbell, who was a self-trained muckraking journalist. She was actually the first woman ever to study biology in an American university. She became a muckraking journalist who wrote a magisterial history of John D. Rockefeller and the Standard Oil Company, which has the very anodyne title, A History of the Standard Oil Company, Volumes 1 and 2. But it was serialized in a daily and it became the basis for the government's case against Rockefeller. And it ended in the breakup of the largest, and most powerful company in the history of the world at that point. And Rockefeller hated her. He called her Ida Tarbarrel. And in the last chapter of the history, she discusses something called legitimate and illegitimate greatness. And she says, look, John D. Rockefeller is a hell of an oil man. Yeah. When you look at how he runs the oil refineries, he's good at it. You know, he has all these oil refineries under his belt and under his, his domain. And if one of them performs better than the others, managers from the other ones are dispatched to the high performing one to learn his techniques and they ripple out through the whole sector. He's really good at it. But also when his rivals tried to build their own oil pipeline so that they could get their oil to market, he dispensed mercenaries with uh, railway spikes to stave their skulls in. And he's really good at that too. And we need to distinguish between his legitimate and his illegitimate greatness. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to break up Standard Oil, we need to break up Standard Oil into companies that are legitimately great. And we need to use the political moment created by weakening Standard Oil's power to prohibit the illegitimate greatness. And this is a thing that I'm very focused on right now. Well, it sounds like you're walking in her footprints. Of yeah, well, I, or, or inspired by her, you know, this, this comes up so much when we have these debates about the tech industry, you know, how do we democratize spying instead of banning it? And I think that if we learn from the lessons of history, we can actually avert the democratization of surveillance and instead use the latent power of technology to keep us private because those this, this has always been the double-edged sword of technology that cryptography works it allows us to keep secrets that are so perfect that if all the hydrogen atoms in the universe were computers that were just guessing at the key until the end of the universe you would run out of universe before you ran out of keys and on the other hand it permits this extraordinary surveillance we could upregulate that privacy element and downregulate 
the privacy invasion, but we have to really seize the means of computation to make that happen. We need to be focused on what legitimate greatness looks like and what illegitimate greatness looks like and what we want to democratize and what we democratize and what we want to prohibit. Absolutely. No, that's a very interesting uh, narrative there. For the last few minutes, let's come back to what lessons your past and your experience might have for drug policy and for how we think about drugs, because, you know, there are clearly overlaps and you've written about them. And I just would be interested for you to share those with us. Well, I would say that the first point is that we need to assure people that there is such a thing as sensible policy. Uh, that's why that's why your book is so important, because people throw their hands up. They look at a, an obviously corrupted process and they they conclude that no process is possible. You know, there's there's this phrase that you may have used yourself and that I use sometimes regulatory capture. And what most people don't know about regulatory capture, it has a very checkered history. It actually originates with the economists who were so influential to Margaret Thatcher, the Chicago school who talked about regulatory capture as a reason to dismantle the government. They said that once that companies will inevitably find ways to suborn the state, to use the state's power to enhance their own. Therefore, we can't have government regulating companies because that regulation will always be distorted. And that council of despair often creeps into our discussions about regulatory capture rather than the, I think, far more sensible conclusion that we need to make companies weak so that they're weaker than the governments that try to regulate them so that regulatory capture is harder. And we need to make governments accountable so that regulatory capture is harder. So we need first and foremost to convince people that the truth is knowable, right? Mm -hmm. That we can arrive at sensible policy. And you know, the evidence for it, it, it feels like an uphill battle, but the evidence for a knowable truth is all around us, right? We have, we're not dead a thousand times over of cholera. And yet mm -hmm. there's no one in parliament who's a microbiologist. Mm -hmm. Your roof hasn't fallen in on your head. And you know, when it does, when buildings start to crumble in Miami, people are legitimately concerned because they do in their hearts know that we can do things like specify the alloy types for a reinforced steel joist so that your building doesn't fall down and kill you. And that when, when it doesn't happen, it's not because the truth is unknowable, it's because the process was rotted from the inside. And so we can legitimately demand a better process. And so that's the first thing. And the second thing I would say is we need to make common cause, that you need to understand that the reason the truth can't be known in drugs policy is the same reason that the truth can't be known in energy policy and in tobacco cancer links and in questions about the efficacy of pharmaceuticals. You know, I thought Ben Goldacre did such a brilliant service to all of us when he wrote a pair of books, one of which criticized the pseudoscience industry and the other criticized the science industry and showed how they were both not doing what they said they were and how both of them were rotted by lack of oversight and corruption and how both of them were capable of producing good things. You know, there's that old saying that what we call alternative medicine that works is medicine. And one of the pathways that we make new, that we learn new things about health is by taking anecdata data and using it as a starting point for doing rigorous data acquisition and analysis. And so in that world, what works for people, what makes people feel better, even if it doesn't have a sound scientific basis, is not useless. It's intriguing, right? It's the it's the loose thread we need to go pull on. Yeah, absolutely. But in terms of the principles, I'm interested in the principles. I mean, the, presumably the you know the principle that the principles of freedom for people to use drugs 
and the principles of freedom from survey. I mean, they, I suppose they're in the same sort of sector, aren't they? The same quadrant of freedom. I mean, and uh, I just wonder if there's anything you can learn from each other in that sense. Sure. I mean, I think we would both acknowledge that people can make unwise choices with all sorts of things in their lives and that those choices are sad and sometimes tragic and that there is a role for the state and for communities in helping people improve their choices. And so without before you even get to the part where we talk about the benefits, we can talk about the best evidence-led way to make the choices better. And you know, I think you've done good work there. You know, your work on on anti-binge drinking campaigns comes to mind. And then there is, of course, the talk about the benefits, which is not a thing we spend a lot of time talking about no, no. with either social media or drugs. It's quite unfashionable to say that drugs are quite fun and sometimes do nice things for people. And it's quite unfashionable to say that social media brings people together. And you're right that there's a role for advocates to make that position understood as well and to articulate the benefits and to also, as Bruce Alexander does in drugs policy and as Dana Boyd does in social media policy, understand that the causal arrow is ambiguous, that the harms people suffer from drugs are sometimes the result of the harms people are suffering in their lives that they are turning to drugs to help them with. And the problem is not the drugs, it's the alienation, the ennui and so on. And as Dana points out, you know, if you think teenagers use the internet too much, you might ask yourself why your city has a curfew for people under 16 after 9 p.m., why public places where teenagers gather use high-pitched tones to that only teenage ears can hear to chase them away, why, you know, cops are able to give out ASBOs with impunity or the new ASBOs that we saw under the current government, you know, all of these things that have made the outdoors inhospitable to children on top of a moral panic about stranger danger and ask yourself whether the pathological technology use is the effect of a pathological treatment of children or the cause of it. And I think that, you know, I am lucky relative to you because I can say I quite like social media and it does good things for me without worrying about being stopped at the border and searched <laughs> because it's not unlawful to enjoy social media. I imagine that being a public advocate for unlawful drugs use subjects you to real sanction. In fact, I know that there's a, a psychopharmacologist in British Columbia who can no longer visit his family in the US because he published academic papers in the 1950s when LSD was legal about his LSD experiments, his, his legal sanctioned LSD experiments, which disqualify him from ever entering the US again when they were discovered by a border guard who searched his name. Yeah, right. Now we're on this topic of uh, social media. Where do you stand on the I mean, some people, well, I think you kind of touched on it, alluded to it, that it can be very rewarding and, and very positive and often therapeutic in a way. But I mean, some people do seem to get obsessed with it. And I get asked all the time, you know, can you get addicted to the internet? What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I wouldn't presume to quibble about the scientific definition of addiction with a psychopharmacologist. So if you're going to tell me that you think it, it feels like addiction, then I'll say sure. What I would say is that when we talk about why people use social media, even if it's harming them, even if they're unhappy with it, we tend to focus on what economists call network effects. And that's well and good. And a network effect is what you get when a product improves because it has more users or more customers. So for example, every time someone buys an iPhone, that's a reason 
for someone else to make an iPhone app. It's a new customer to approach. And the more iPhone apps there are, the more reason there are for people to buy iPhones. Likewise, you might join Facebook because your friends are there. And then once you join, someone might, else might join because you were there. And the network effects are very powerful, but they're not the whole story. And there's another, I think, far more important concept from the economic literature called switching costs, which is what you have to give up to leave one of these social media platforms. And the switching cost of abandoning Facebook is that you can no longer communicate with the friends who only use Facebook. You leave behind your community, your customers, your friends, your family members. And that's a very high switching cost. You know, I, I often reflect on the fact that my grandmother, who is a Soviet refugee, came to Canada, but her family didn't. And they stayed behind because the switching costs of leaving were too high. And she experienced those switching costs. She had to leave behind everything she had. And she wasn't able to communicate with them for the next 15 years. It was, it was when my dad was, was in his teens that the phone rang in their house and his mother started crying. And it was her mother who she hadn't spoken to in more than a decade. And so, you know, switching costs cause people to endure difficult situations for long periods. And the thing about tech is those switching costs are wholly artificial. They're manufactured by Facebook and other social media platforms. You know, you can leave E and switch to, you know, Vodafone and stay in touch with your friends. You can leave your email provider and keep emailing your friends. The only reason you can't leave Facebook and keep Facebooking with your friends is Facebook blocks it. And they block it quite aggressively, both te technologically, but more importantly, they use aggressive legal tactics to shut down anyone who would build an interoperable service with Facebook that doesn't have Facebook's permission. And if we could lower the switching costs, if leaving Facebook didn't mean that you left behind your friends, it just meant you left behind Facebook's algorithms and surveillance, then I think you'd see a lot more people hopping the, the fence around the wall garden. And as technological interventions go, interoperability, which is contemplated in the new European Digital Markets Act, and also in the US Access Act, and also in legislative action in India, Australia, and the UK, interoperability targets the right kind of action, right? You know, breakups would be good too, but breakups take decades and cost billions. This is a thing we could do tomorrow. We could just mandate an API, an interoperability layer that would allow competitors to connect to them. And then you could go and you could tell your friends, I'm over here now, but we can still talk. And I don't know why you're using Facebook still, but you know, I hope you'll leave soon, right? And you can keep talking to them about why they should leave, you know, as what from your pastoral existence outside of Facebook's walled garden, you can have it both ways. And that I think is the right solution to focus on as an immediate, highly effective, cheap and easy intervention that could liberate literally billions of people from social media's worst aspects. Well, Corey, that is an absolutely perfect note on which to end. And uh, all I can say is I'm glad that you're championing this cause because you clearly you clearly understand it very well. And that's, uh, that's not a trivial thing to have, uh, have achieved. So thank you so much for uh, sharing this podcast with us and, uh, and good luck in your campaign. And and I hope that Brexit doesn't get in the way of, uh, of us helping you move in that direction. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's been an honor and a pleasure. I have admired your work since the first edition of that book and even before when I heard you on the radio. And so I'm delighted to chat with you. And again, I'm, I'm very impressed and excited about the work you've done, not just politically, but also scientifically. I've followed your research on end-of-life care 
and psychedelics and anxiety. And I think, you know, as someone who's watched people I love very much die very slowly and very hard, that sort of thing feels to me like a legacy onto itself, let alone all the political work you've done as well. Well, thank you. And I'm pursuing that too, as you know. So keep following. <laughs> thank you so much, Corey. Well, thank you. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Drug Science Podcast. Thank you for listening. But before you go, I would just like to share with you a question from our drug science community members. Recently, we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything Part 2. Enjoy. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to ask about dosing. So obviously, I think everyone knows that every individual has the ability to metabolize and process drugs at a different rate to another person, whether that's alcohol or whether that's psilocybin potentially or MDMA. So I was kind of wondering, is, is there an opportunity maybe to personalize dosing, which is maybe a, a kind of a step away from the historical kind of pharma model. But if these individuals are only going through kind of dosing sessions once or twice, or maybe three times over the course of a year, is there maybe an argument to say that it's worth that investment in personalizing the dosing to that profile? Have you got shares in mind, Med? Uh, <laughs> no, um, and I, I never. They just—it was very interesting. They published a paper last week where they claimed that that was enormously valuable. They published. They basically bought up all the data. There's a, a really great research group in Zurich, headed up by um, a guy called Lepti, and he's done a lot of pharmacokinetics of MDMA and also LSD, and they have the biggest data set on on MDMA plasma levels and effects. And mine made a great announcement that they had discovered that there was a cytochrome. So the metabolism of most drugs is done in the liver and it's done by these, these enzymes, which are called cytochromes and there's loads of them. And I think this was a CYP3A2 or something. They discovered there was an enzyme, one of these enzymes in the liver, which if it wasn't working very well, meant that you had higher levels of LSD. And there are genetic variations in every SIP. So this particular SIP did seem to lead to higher levels of LSD and longer, longer lasting effects. So they promoted this as being a really important discovery. And so you could actually personalize treatment in theory. I think my own view is that was probably a bit overstated. I think this was a, this was like, you know, like a lot, a lot of these new companies that are developing psychedelic therapy, they're not really companies. They're, they're, they're trying to be companies They've got lots of shares they want people to buy, so they've got some money to do research. And I think it was a way of promoting people to buy the shares, get the share price up a bit. Because the reality is what they didn't show. Well, they didn't show there was any relationship between plasma levels and effects. They showed if you've got higher plasma, if you've got the enzyme, you got higher plasma levels, the effect lasts a bit longer. But it, and it was a bit higher, but they didn't, there's no good relationship between plasma levels and effect. And that's what you really need to know, because it, you want to be able to predict the effect. And I think the reality is at present, you can't easily do that. And even, so even if you had the, that particular mutation, and even if you, you know, it was like, you know, so that you weren't metabolizing it, it's not guaranteed you'll have a longer effect or a bigger effect. So is it worth doing? Well, yes, if you're going to commercialize 
therapy and you're going to charge people a few hundred pounds to have it be genotyped, yeah, then it can make you some money. But whether it's actually worth it in the real world, I don't know. I, I think it's probably not personally, but that's just my own opinion, you know what I mean? Um, have you noticed any differences in kind of a typical patient profile? I know they've done kind of weight adjusted doses. Very interesting. There's no, there's, that's, that's been studied, certainly been studied for psilocybin and there's, weight doesn't seem to have any particular impact on it at all. I don't think it's so been so well studied, but I think if they found that, they'd have reported that, but they didn't seem to report that. Also other drug interactions. I mean, the other reason I'm a bit sceptical about the that cytochrome finding was because that is a, that's an, an inducible enzyme that smoking induces. So you might imagine that smokers have, would have a different response and they didn't. So um, no, there are the amazing paradoxes. So, I mean, in our LSD study, which some of you hopefully have read, we gave it intravenously to avoid the possibility of it not being absorbed through the gut. Uh, even when you give it intravenously, two people didn't have a trip. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely no idea why. They definitely got the drug and they got the same. And it's so individual variability is more complex than we understand. And it isn't just the liver, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So in time, it may be. In time, we may discover there are individuals who've got mutations of the receptor that, that actually reduce its effect. And that, that's possible, I think. And you could pick that up with a genetic test or blood test right at baseline, I guess. In theory, yeah. I mean, it, but I wouldn't well, be running out to do 23andMe. I mean, I, I, don't know if they, I don't know if they do the 2A receptor. I don't know. There will probably be most proteins in the body. How, you know, you, you, if you ever look at the 23andMe database, you'll find that you know, most proteins have multiple different mutations. And until people have taken someone with that mutation and given them LSD, you won't know if that mutation actually does anything. So, and that could be a long time coming. It may never come. People may never get around to doing it. But so at present, no, I think it's um, the secret is basically to start low and don't give, you know, and if you want to take, you know, and if you don't have an effect, take more rather than start high and, and find you overdosed. <laughs>